scripture reading is from Luke chapter 19, Luke 19 verses 41 to 44. This is uh, in connection with the uh, triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus and uh, as he um, was coming towards the city, we pick this up in verse uh, 41, and when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Would you turn then please to Isaiah 63. I'll read verses 7 to 16. The text is verses 7 to 14. And then I'll read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 2, article 1, after that. Isaiah 63, verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord and praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their saviour. In all their affliction he was afflicted, And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest." So didst thou lead thy people to make for thyself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from thy holy and glorious habitation. Where are thy zeal and thy mighty deeds? The stirrings of thy heart and thy compassion are restrained toward me. For thou art our father, though Abraham does not know us, 
and Israel does not recognize us. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer from of old is thy name. And then would you look please at the Westminster, you have a copy of that on the bulletin of this uh, particular article from chapter 2, article 1, Westminster Confession of Faith. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we come across uh, deep theological truths, uh, either as we read them in your word or hear them in sermons, Father, we pray that you would enable us to learn what we may, to maintain our concentration, even if at times we feel that uh, certain doctrines are beyond us and we are out of our depth. For, Father, we accept that every truth about you is beyond us. But help us to learn what we may according to our nature and our capabilities and our limitations. Father, will you be our teacher? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, it is uh, quite common today to hear sermons about the emotions of God. Sermons, or sometimes you might read articles about the same, on God's emotions. And that's not surprising because the scripture speaks of God as experiencing emotional reactions. And we're going to look at some of those terms as we find them in the passage before us in Isaiah. And uh, it's very uh, easy when we hear, for example, about uh, God feeling a deep love for us, when we read that kind of language in the scripture, it's very easy for us to understand that and receive that in a very highly charged emotional way, depending on the text and the sermon, for example. Or if we read about or hear about God being uh, moved to tears over our sin and our misery, again, this kind of language is very comforting to us and very motivating. And yet, the church fathers, and not just some, but virtually all of them, and the reformers, again, all of the reformers, and likewise today, virtually all of the, certainly the, the, the best reformed theologians today, and books written by them if they touch on these subjects, 
they agree with the way the Westminster Confession puts it in this chapter, that God is without passions. He is without emotional change and uh, he is without suffering. And uh, this is a doctrine that's referred to, and you can look it up if you want to but sometime, but uh, it's a doctrine that's referred to as the impassibility of God. Impassibility meaning God has no passions, the language that we find here in the Confession. And this is a doctrine that's very much under fire today. It's been very much under fire in recent times where people seem to be more interested in having a, well, for want of a better term if I may use it, a kind of touchy-feely God. Uh, They're more interested in touchy-feely stuff in general and so that is, uh, the scripture is read in that way and what is said about God is read in that way. In contrast to what was said by the church fathers and the Reformation in the time of the Reformation. Now, you'll notice that the Westminster in this article gives a, a pretty big list of God's attributes. That is to say, God's personal defining characteristics. That's what uh, the word attributes means. And it would be impossible to deal with all of these uh, terms in this particular article in one sermon. But I will be selecting those out of this article that bear on this subject of God's impassibility and using that to explain the emotional language which is, runs right through this whole passage that we read in Isaiah. Two points as we look at that, the expression of God's emotions firstly and secondly what these emotions mean. The expressions themselves, very emotional language and what these expressions mean. In the first place then, note that this text, as I say, has quite a lot of emotional language which is said of the Lord, language that's used of him. But that's not unique to this passage. It is uh, right throughout the whole scriptures and it's very, very common language. And in fact, one of the most important words in the Old Testament, it's a very common word but a very key one in understanding God's love, is the word that is translated loving kindness and it's mentioned twice in verse 7 God's loving kindness his abundant loving kindness and it's a word that means uh, loyal love that leads to mercy it's a kind of summary of the different ideas that uh, are packed into this into the Hebrew word here loyal love that leads to mercy and it's a word that's very often found in a covenant context nearly always In verse 9, there's another different word used for love, but this one is a more general word. It's a very general word for love, not quite as uh, full of meaning as the other one. But once again, in verse 9, it's also connected to God's mercy. And uh, we can think also, for that matter, if you want to talk about uh, the New Testament, you can certainly find similar language in the New Testament. And we even find when Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler that it specifically tells us that Jesus felt love for that man, for that young man. Mark 10, verse 21. And when we hear such language, whether we're reading about the abundance of God's loving kindnesses in the Old Testament, or whether we're reading about the Lord Jesus feeling love for someone, 
uh, when we read that kind of language, it's very difficult for us as we think about it to divorce it from emotional content. Because whenever we think about love, we really tend to understand that only in terms of the word, in terms of our own experiences and how we experience love. And so we think, for example, of the love between a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage, which the scripture itself specifically uses as an analogy of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and his church. Or we think of the the, the love of parents for their children and we think of all of the the loyalty tied up with that and the willingness to be self-sacrificing and the, the willingness to forgive those who are close to you because you love them. And that comes with a a lot of uh, emotional content as, as we think about those things. Another word for the mercy aspect of that is used in verse 7, and that's the word compassion, the compassion of God or his pity. And that's, in terms of the Hebrew language, that is an even more, even more an emotional word than the word loving-kindness because it specifically means uh, a deep, intense, inward feeling when we see someone else suffering. And uh, there too we think of the Lord Jesus' compassion. Uh, We know that he felt that compassion. Uh, He felt compassion for the crowds when he was healing them. Matthew 9 verse 36. And again we relate that to our own experiences and we think of the the compassion that we feel in the face of suffering. And you know how emotional that can be. If you've, got, if you've ever had a child who was really suffering, uh, you know how that feels, that, that uh, feeling, that deep and intense feeling of compassion. Even sometimes hearing about it from other people, uh, you, you, or, or seeing something on TV about uh, suffering children, uh, you can quite often get a sense of uh, that feeling. But Isaiah goes even a step further in describing, describing the love and compassion of God toward his people Israel, his sons, as they are called in verse uh, 8. And uh, he, he says that uh, in connection with the fact that he became their saviour, verse 8, a truth, of course, that points ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, that God became our saviour above all through the Lord Jesus Christ, But then in verse 9 he says that which also points to the coming of the Lord Jesus that God was afflicted in all their afflictions. The afflictions of his people. In everything they suffered, God suffered. That's the language that's used here. This is a picture of a suffering God that is not uncommon in the scriptures. And there especially we tend to think as Christians straight away of the Lord Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that we know something of the extent of that suffering, but it's so great that we can hardly even begin to imagine what it was like. And as I said, these things move us and they have been used by many preacher and many an evangelist to uh, move both congregations and crowds throughout history. So how could there be a problem with speaking of a suffering God in light of what we read here. Closely related, the passage speaks of the grief of God 
verse 10. God's sons rebelled against him despite all of that love he'd shown, uh, all of that compassion, all of those saving works for them, and yet they rebelled against it. And we read here that that grieved his Holy Spirit. And uh, that's, by the way, also a word that can mean uh, provoked or irritated. So some translations have that provoked the Holy Spirit or irritated the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter which way you translate it. Either way, uh, it's an emotional reaction as far as the words are concerned. Which implies that it grieved God. Though it also shows in this passage, uh, by the way, a distinction of purpose in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is distinguished here as a person capable of being grieved, uh, dwelling in the midst of God's people, verse 11, leading or guiding his people to their rest in the land of Canaan, verse 14. So the Holy Spirit is described in a personal way and in a way that shows us just how active he was in the Old Testament, even before the fullness of the Spirit at Pentecost, still very, very active in the Old Testament. But still, the point that the Holy Spirit was grieved means that God was grieved as far as the language is concerned. We have similar language in the New Testament. We've already come across some of it in our series on Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And similar language we find also with the Lord Jesus over the apostasy of Israel and the misery of of this world that results from sin. Luke 19, 41, we read it, and the uh, shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And we read it of God, the triune God. Uh, in Genesis 6, verse 6, God was sorry that he made man. Psalm 78, 40, God was grieved by Israel in the wilderness. This kind of language is very common. Then there is the wrath of God, his anger. His anger against the nations, which if you glance back in uh, the first part of Isaiah 63, you'll find the first six verses talk about that. And it talks of the vengeance in God's heart against the nations, particularly in verse 4. And then also in verse 10, it talks about his wrath or anger against his own people Israel because of their rebellion. Psalm 2 verse 12 also warns the nations to do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And this this raises another observation about the way that the Bible speaks of the triune God in this emotional way, that uh, it also speaks as if God has changing emotions like ours. The sun may become angry. That's change. The sun may have his wrath kindled, like starting to light a fire. That's a change in the way the language words it. And in our text too, in verse 10, the Lord turns to become Israel's enemy because they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. And it's quite common in that kind of context to speak of God even as regretting or repenting 
or relenting or changing his mind. A few verses to illustrate that. Uh, Genesis 6 verse 7, 1 Samuel 15 verse 11, Jeremiah 18 verse 8, Jeremiah 42 verse 10, and Jonah 3 verse 9. Though I hasten to add that the word repent in this case does not mean sorrow over sin, but uh, it means uh, regret over a decision. And that's the, uh, the way that uh, the language is used. The language of uh, being sorry and uh, changing your mind. Clearly, the Bible applies the language of changing emotions to God. And it is very easy for us then to think of God as if he were just like us. And we, since we know what it's like to have changing emotions, we know, for example, what it's like to uh, fall in love or perhaps even to fall out of love. We know what it's like to blow up and we know what it's like to cool down. Our emotions go up and down and we know what that's like. We know what it's like to have regrets, to be sorry that we did something. We know what it's like to have these sudden spikes in our emotions and uh, how quickly things can spike and go up and down. A feeling of love one moment, a feeling of anger the next, a feeling of compassion. These things can hit us and change our mood. They result in a certain kind of internal change. Well, this, um, this is the easy part of our text, so to speak. Noting the language. But we need to dig a little bit deeper. And uh, this is the harder part. Because at first glance, it appears very, very clear that the the Scripture speaks of God as having emotions and even as changing his emotions. That language is very definitely there throughout the Scripture. And uh, also because, as some writers have said, it is, in a way, counterintuitive. It goes against what we feel intuitively must be the case, that God, a God who cares must have these emotions. He must surely love us in that very emotional way and to um, be compassionate for our sins in that very emotional way. It's very easy to make that assumption. And so we need to look at whether these expressions really mean that God experiences changing emotions or whether something else is going on. And we need also in the process to explain why the church fathers and the reformers and the Westminster Confession, and orthodox theologians of today, not only Reformed people, but other orthodox theologians, uh, why they insist on the impassibility of God, as they do. This is a matter of orthodoxy. This is not some rare and unusual doctrine. It is a matter of historical and present orthodoxy. And uh, if you doubt that, uh, you can very easily Google the subject of impassibility, and I'm Sure, you'll find plenty of material on that, the impassibility of God, or you can look in uh, G.I. Williamson's commentary on the Westminster Confession on this uh, chapter 2, Article 1, where he has a very brief uh, section on it. Now, we look at this in our second and final point, what these expressions mean. And the, the starting point for getting at this subject is the truth that contrary to the way many today want to understand these expressions, God is not a man. And that is a truth that is taught also throughout the Scriptures. 
Numbers 23, verse 19. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. God is not a man that he should change his mind or have regret. He is not a man with a genetic predisposition or body chemistry or experiences in life that cause him to react one way one time with an emotional input and have a different feeling and a different emotion another time. A number of truths arise from that point. Uh, One of those is that when we read of God reacting emotionally or having changing feelings, this is what is known as an anthropomorphism, which is a big word for saying that God is spoken of as if he were like a man, even though he is not. G.I. Williamson uses a different word, a metaphor, saying uh, something is something else even when it's only true in a certain comparison, a certain way. And so this is uh, speaking of God as if he were like a man, even though he is not. Why does God do that? Why does he speak in that way? In order to help us understand his person, his works, his acts, all of which are for his own glory. Verse 14 incidentally speaks of that at the end of verse 14. And for his praise, verse 7, as well as for our good. This is also due to his grace, that he stoops down to describe himself as if he were like us, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to understand these truths that he is teaching us. We really wouldn't be able to understand anything. It is in that sense what the reformers, including Calvin, referred to as accommodation. Accommodation means that God is suiting the way he expresses the truth in a way that finite human beings with all our weakness and limitations are able to at least understand something of the truth. So God graciously stoops down, uh, condescends, that's a word that G.I. Williamson used in this connection, God condescends, he stoops down in order to help us understand something about him. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to understand these things so clearly. John Calvin speaking on verses 9 and 10 about God's suffering and the spirit being grieved uh, says that God cannot in any way undergo anguish. He cannot suffer. And that God applies nevertheless, he applies to himself human passions according to our way of speaking in order to help us. That's the accommodation. That does not mean that we are to project our emotions onto God even though this language is used. There is another qualification on this and uh, keep in mind that the Lord Jesus actually is human, like us, as well as being divine, not like us. As God, he has no body, parts or passions. But as man... He experienced changing emotions. He wept. He certainly suffered, including suffering anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. And at the death of his friend Lazarus. And at Israel's apostasy. And it's important to keep that in mind as we consider this subject. 
The second consideration on this is that the impassibility of God is required by certain attributes of God. And especially the fact that he is infinite and immutable, which means unchanging or unchangeable, eternal and perfect. In fact, when you look up discussions on this subject, you'll generally find them in the context of God's immutability. God is unchanging and unchangeable and therefore he does not have changing passions or emotions. God is always the same. Psalm 102 verse 27. He does not change. Malachi 3 verse 6. He is the creator, the almighty creator. He is not a finite and changeable creature with a certain genetic disposition and with body chemicals floating around and hormones and circumstances that upset us and all the rest. He is not a creature like that. And every one of his attributes, including his love and his mercy and his holiness and his hatred of sin, every one of those attributes like him is eternal and perfect and complete and pure and therefore there are no spikes of emotion. There are no ups and downs in that way and there are no internal changes. Moreover, he is not dependent on his creation. That is another historical teaching which is sometimes referred to as God's aseity but it means his absolute independence that he's not governed in any way or controlled in any way by his creation. He is not vulnerable in any way. He is not emotionally vulnerable overcome by suffering or by emotion or the emotion of others or swayed by the emotion of others. God cannot be less and he cannot be more. He cannot be diminished and he cannot be elevated further. He is infinite in everything he is. And therefore again, no spikes of emotion, no eternal change and no suffering. Why then does the scripture use this emotional language and the language of God's anguish and and affliction and suffering, and the language of God relenting or changing his mind and so forth. Well, it is to teach us about his unchanging attributes, the attitudes that he has towards his creatures because of those attributes, and uh, also the acts that result from that, the works of God. Let me give you some examples. When we read that God loves us, a term we could understand very emotionally, but it is teaching us about his perfect and infinite commitment and loyalty that he has sworn to show to us and expressed most of all in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read a term like compassion, it is teaching us Not that God has this emotional fluctuation. It is teaching us how thoroughly the Lord is involved in our sorrow and how great is his willingness to deal with that and to forgive us for our sins for Jesus' sake. When we read about his grief, it is teaching us how seriously he takes any attack on that love that he has for his people any attack on that saving work of God. And when we read about his wrath, it is teaching us how strongly he is opposed to sin 
in his infinite and perfect and eternal and unchanging holiness. Because these emotional terms teach us about these truths, the impassibility of God in no way suggests that God is uncaring or indifferent or uninterested or passive. On the contrary, his impassibility and immutability are the guarantee that he always cares, that he is always fully involved with his people and with this world for that matter, that he is deeply involved and deeply active. In fact, he is perfectly and fully active in every way in the lives of his people, in your life and mine. Because his love and his mercy and his compassion are eternally unchangeable, they're not vulnerable. They're not things that go up and down. God is not a God who is fickle, one moment like this and then changing and something different. He is not a God who is able to fail. He is not a God who is able to be manipulated by the emotions of himself or others. And that congregation is a comfort. And that is actually the main application that comes out of this teaching, that God has no body, parts or passions. What a comfort that is, that you can know his love and his care and his mercy and his forgiveness will not change if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The third consideration is that these emotional terms enable us to uh, respond and to relate to the Lord in a covenant relationship. The covenant is God's strategy of rescuing sinners by revealing who he is, who God is, and what he has done, especially in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then calling on us to respond. Calling on us to respond with obedience, uh, so that we may enjoy the blessings that are promised in the covenant, as opposed to disobedience, which may open us to the covenant curses. And by using these emotional terms, the Lord enables us to understand and respond to him better, to desire the blessings more, to strive more uh, enthusiastically for obedience, and to fear rebellion and its consequences by the use of terms like wrath and anger, for example, to fear those things and to want to stay well away from that all the more. Now, the Lord can, of course, change the way that he treats us as his creatures and uh, as his people. He can change the way he acts towards his creatures according to how we respond. Uh, Again, to quote uh, from G.I. Williamson on this, he says, the immutability of God, the fact that he does not change, uh, the immutability doesn't mean that God is immobile, that he doesn't act and isn't involved. For example, if you would turn from obedience to covenant breaking, then God's hand you may find is suddenly against you. And that happens because God is upholding his eternal, unchanging character, his eternal, unchanging holiness and justice, exactly as he swore in the covenant. But if, on the other hand, you turn from disobedience to repentance then you may again experience that restoration uh, in to experience the light of God's fatherly countenance 
again, according to his unchanging, eternal character of love and mercy and compassion and so forth, just as he promised in his covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, the more we appreciate the depth of his love and mercy and his holy hatred of sin, the more we commit, Lord willing, to that covenant life, the more we commit to the Lord Jesus Christ. The emotional terms help us to appreciate that depth of the love and mercy of God. But let us always remember that God is not a man. He is not a creature. He is the only living and true God, infinite in being and perfection, without body, parts or passions, immutable, eternal and incomprehensible, as well as our loving Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to learn from the emotional terms that you have used to describe your actions and your attributes. Help us to understand the depth and the strength of your commitment to your people, the depth and the strength of your commitment to your love and your mercy, as well as your holiness and your justice, to your whole character and your works. Father, help us to learn from the fact that you do not undergo emotional change and that you do not suffer or have passions, that your commitment to showing your nature and to carrying out your works and caring for your people is infinitely firm and unchanging and in no way vulnerable to any interference from men or from devils. We praise you and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, God's love is not like uh, human emotions. It is strong and true and eternal, an attribute, an attitude of favour towards God's chosen ones that uh, cannot be undone. Hymn 329 stands as 1, 2 and then 4 to 6. And afterwards, would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 329 stands as 1, 2 and 4 to 6.
after the blessing. Our doxology is number 231 in the Psalter Hymnal. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>